I know many of you, uh, if, if you're visiting with us or if you're joining us online, um, we're in the middle of a small group study, uh, at least a number of us in, uh, here at St. Paul, and it's a 12-week study where in more more casual uh, type of format where people are either meeting in, diff- in, in other people's homes or they're meeting up at the church, and and the idea is uh, we're guided by uh, a book uh, from Max Lucado that's looking at different passages in the Gospel of Luke, and I think this is week nine of 12, so we're going to be meeting for three more, and uh, each clerk, depending on what service, worship service, either the 8, 30, the 9, or the 11, uh, we're using the, that week's study text to also be the text for the sermon. And some of these sermons, John and I are doing them in a, in a conversational style, which also has by nature... Uh, it's more casual, and, and what I've mentioned over the last few weeks is uh, that we want to invite you in uh, to, um, if John and I were having a conversation around the passage, um, we, we do meet a couple of times each week to go over the passage, and some of this, it's, uh, it's from some of those reflections, and uh, so what we want to do again, we want to take this text, which I know you've mentioned to me that you think this is my favorite text in the gospel, which it is. I think Luke 15 is, if you could only read one chapter in the Bible in hopes that you would get a, a, some level of understanding about God's love, I think it's Luke 15. I think it's the gospel of miniature or microcosm of the gospel. And so in your studies this week, uh, what maybe two, three things that stood out to you as you've looked at this passage and even, I think, even led a small group as well, uh, this particular passage? Sure. And, you know, it's, it's a very familiar passage, mm-hmm. right? And before you can actually look at what the prodigal son parable is about, you go back to the beginning of the chapter and you get the context of what's really kind of unfolding here. Jesus has this new reality that's happening. People who are outcasts, people who are marginalized are coming to hear him. Luke identifies those folks as sinners and tax collectors. These are the people that are coming to Jesus And Luke specifically says to hear them. Now, the result of that or uh, what happens uh, in the minds of the religious leaders is there is some grumbling, some jealousy that is kind of unfolding here because for one reason or another, they're not coming to hear the religious leaders. Um, And, of course, there's a sermon in that of itself. Why do they find mercy from Jesus? I wonder what they expected to uh, these sinners and tax collectors what they expected to hear from the, the um, Pharisees and the religious leaders. Maybe a scolding, maybe a lecture or whatnot. But Luke says they are grumbling. They're grumbling about this little reality. And because they're grumbling, Jesus tells these three parables. And these three parables are all connected together. Of course, today we're focusing on the last parable. But you have this gradual um, going from non-value to high-value you have one sheep out of a hundred. You have one coin out of ten. You have one son out of two. And you can see this progressively getting more valuable and, and more um, particularized as Jesus gets to this point, to the end of our uh, parable where we're going to kind of focus on. You start to see this value. And when you take those first two parables and compare it to the third, there is this, this active seeking. The owner seems to be looking diligently for that one sheep that's lost, or the woman is looking diligently for that one coin that is misplaced or lost. And 
But in the third parable, the father does not seem to be going any further than the mailbox to find his son that has left. And that is very peculiar in that uh, sense. There's, there's, there's no seeking, at least if the prodigal son seems to be the one who is lost. And of course, what, we're gonna, uh, what we tend to think is, is that um, there is the, the prodigal son parable is really about the older son. Because the father does go and seek the older son. Which and is interesting. Right. Uh, yeah. and, 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 um, and, and so what is the, the connection here with the older son? Um, and how, did they, how did the older son get to that place where um, he was so self-deceived that, the, um, that he would not go and join the celebration? The, the brother, he doesn't even call him his brother. It's your son, of, the son of yours. Um, has left and squandered all. By the way, you have three brothers. I do. Have you ever said that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mom and Dad, don't look at. And you have two brothers, so let's. (laughs) Might have said that a few times. Uh, You know, it's not my brother; it's your son. (laughs) Yes, it is. But you have this idea of squandering this uh, self-deception. I am not getting the justice due. Should I not be celebrated because I'm the good son and let my younger brother kind of watch from afar and see what he's missing out on? Dad, why didn't you um, lecture our son? Why didn't you send him to timeout? Now, I want you to go and think about what you did, you know, and put him. Why such a celebration so immediately that he could not even get out his, um, his, uh, his confession of what his plan was? And so there must have been some sort of self-deception that the older brother was uh, living into, at least embracing at that moment, where he would not even consider the fact that maybe, wait a minute, maybe there's something wrong on the inside of me. Maybe I'm seeing this from a different vantage. Sure. Self-deception, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, good, it's a good phrase for it or a good word for it. Um, because what we see in the older son is uh, this level of self-deception. Because self, self-deception... Actually, people that are self-deceived, uh, it influences their entire life. It, it, uh, it, it, it colors how they think. Um, I mean, it, it'll determine one's experience of life. Uh, for instance, they will either, they'll, they, well, it's not either, they do this. They will inflate another person's faults. That they're always going to be worse than what they are. And, and at the same time, they'll overinflate their own virtue. So you have the pushing down of other people and you have the elevation of your own sense of self. And, and they live in this comparative style of life where, where people are always worse than, than what they really are and, and the, the person that self-deceived is always better than, than what they are. Maybe the best passage outside of Luke 15 is Luke 18. And, and those that have, have uh, been studying the, the Gospel of Luke, you know that in Luke 18... That's that time in, in Luke's gospel where you have a tax collector and you also have a Pharisee. And they're both at a, in, a, in a place of prayer and the tax collector is beating his chest and he's fully aware of his own faults and his own sins and, and the decisions that he's made. And, and he can barely utter the words. And yet you have the Pharisee who's sitting and really not even looking at the altar. He's looking down at the tax collector and saying what? Thank goodness. Thank you, God, that I'm not like you. That's exactly right. So you push down the one and you elevate yourself. And, and, and then what someone who, who struggles with self-deception, uh, they will look to justify all of their behaviors. 
It's for them, it's, a, it's always going to be a win-lose. Um, in order for them to win, another person has to lose. They, and people, are hard, they don't even value people as people. They see them as threats. And they're going to be worse than what they really are. And, and, so, and so it's hard for people that struggle with self-deception, it's hard for people to trust, trust another person. I mean, it's hard, it's hard for people to love. Because uh, in, in order to do that, you, you, you can't overinflate yourself and then, then underinflate another person. And so normally the way this is processed out in their relationships is with blame. Something goes wrong, it's not my fault. After all, my virtue is perfect. It must be your fault because you're, you know. Well, I was just saying the same thing. It must yeah, not be my fault. It yeah, must yeah, be your exactly fault. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So normally it is my fault, but I mean, uh, but uh, so people who struggle with self-deception, uh, this is a real, this is a real problem, and it's an inability to to see things as they are because you see it through this twisted lens. And so obviously, you mentioned that that's one of the struggles for the older son. I mean, you, you know, what's interesting to me is how this plays out just in those last few verses. Yeah. So you would. When the father comes and entreats his uh, son, older son, to come and celebrate what is happening, um, the, the, the older son has this opportunity to uh, speak back or at least defend what he's doing. And um, he answers in, in verse 29 and 30, he answers his father this way. He says, look, all of these years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me an old or rather a young goat that I might celebrate my fr- my, with my friends. But this son of yours who came and who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed and fat- the fattened calf for him. Do you do you see the absolutes in there? You never gave me even a small goat. I have always, all these years, obeyed you. you I have never disobeyed your commands. And I've served you all these years. There's this, this sense of, of, of this, this, uh, these absolutes that have driven him to this place where he cannot see more than the three feet in front of him. He can't see anything else that's going on. Of course, his father is the one who entreats him, encourages him, says, look, all that I have is yours. This son, we have to celebrate. We, we have to because he is dead. He was dead now is alive. He was lost and he is now found. And it is this change of perspective that is necessary that this older son cannot actually grasp a hold of. He can't see outside of that framework that he has found himself stuck in. And it's the father who comes and says, look, all the, he was lost and he was found. He was dead and now he is found. And it's, it's, it's marvelous to see this graciousness of, of the father who is encouraging the older son to participate. And if you look at the representation, you know, of course, the, um, many scholars will point to this, and it seems to be what, what uh, I would lean into also, is that the father here of the two sons is, is representative of the, of the Heavenly Father. And the uh, younger son is representative of the tax collectors and the sinners, the ones who have gone out and, and um, sinned and become marginalized. But now they're like Zacchaeus. They're coming back. 
They're coming back. They were lost and now they're found. And now you have the older brother who's like the religious leaders that is pushing back against that. They are on their own horse or they're self-deceived to think that um, they need a lecture more than they need a hug. They need, they need to be told what to do more than they need to be uh, welcomed back into the family. And, and yet this, this graciousness of God... I mean, i got to tell you, this rubs me a little bit of the wrong way sometimes. I mean, I live in a society, we all live in the world where um, justice is due, right? And we get a little bit un, un, uh, uh, unbalanced if someone didn't get what they deserve. Because we'll help, you know, guide folks who are the justice givers into, you know, giving what is deserved. And and to imagine that God is like this, yes, there is a sense that, oh my goodness, how wonderful this is. Yet on the other hand, it is like, well, God, um, really? A lot of grace. Yeah. Really? I mean. Uh, you know, you think about the, I mean, so you see, you mentioned a few minutes ago about how the Father in the passage is representative of God. And, and, and yet this God, uh, through the parable, is uh, so gracious and you're talking about it rubbing you the wrong way. I mean, I, I, I know I exactly would agree with you. I mean, the seriousness of God's grace in the passage. And, and if you think about this, it's, just, it's almost offensive. And, uh, and it strikes a, a, to, to, a, to a, at least a chord inside of us that almost is like this is too much. He's that gracious. And if he is, then we don't have the luxury as followers of this God, to treat that grace any less than what it is. And so just sit with that for a moment, that he, he really is that gracious. I mean, there's something about me that when I read this passage, I mean, I, I get the idea of the younger son, you know, coming back and groveling, and, and that sort of sounds like that's the way it should be, and, but, but yet... The level of grace that is given by the Father in the passage is overwhelming. And I read this passage, and there's part of me that wants to say, well, you just can't trust God to be angry. I mean, or to be mad, or to be vindictive, or to, to hold a grudge, or to, to be the one that says you've got to go and do all these nine or ten things, and then, then receive the love and the mercy. He's it. That gracious. Could you imagine being at the crucifixion? And, and Luke is going to talk about this in Luke 22, a few chapters later. And um, the one on the cross that deserved to be there, yet asked for forgiveness. And at the end of his life, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Yeah. Um, how about all those folks that have been with him all that long? I mean, there's a, there is that sense of sure. pushing back. Uh, or like the parable where the worker comes at 8. Yeah. The worker comes at noon, the worker comes at five, and they all get paid the same? Yeah. That doesn't sound right, does it? Or if you're the older son, you know, I've been slaving and working all my days, and yet all of a sudden this younger brother comes back who's supposed to be beneath him, and he is received. You know, what's interesting about the, the gospel, and it's definitely true in this passage, is that what this really is, is like a mirror. And there's part of us, as we read this passage, I wonder if we're bold enough to look in this mirror of this prodigal son's story 
and allow it to reveal what it reveals about us. To be uh, honest enough with ourselves and say, you know what, God? I rank people. And I'll be happy to tell you who's more important than the other. Or uh, not just in the ranking, but in the, uh, in the judgment. As if to say that we have enough ability to, to actually sit in the place of Christ. You know, this uh, parable, um, if you spend time with it, it's, uh, it has this ability to remove things in our life. And we're left vulnerable. Because whether we like to admit it or not, the parable really is about the older son. That's the one that God goes to seek. And there are times where, like the older son, it's just easier to, uh, to throw a temper tantrum. And to sit in disbelief that how dare God be this gracious. But if he is this gracious, then who are we to see it as something less than what it really is? It's almost wasteful. Because I'll be the first to admit, I can identify with the older son. And if I had to guess, you can too. Take him on as a hired servant? Absolutely. He's got to pay for what he did. And yet there's one that is so gracious that is willing to not just forgive, but to restore. This isn't a parable about the younger son. It's a parable about the older son. And I wonder how many times we have more in agreement with the older son than we do the younger. Lord, as we, again, we study this passage throughout the week and, and then here today in this worship service, and um, truth be told, God, it's, uh, on one level, it's a parable that, that feels like it hits below the belt. There's something about us that would, we, we like the, the logic of a hired servant, but not a restored son or restored daughter. And so in a way that uh, we in this moment can be fully honest with you, we pray for forgiveness. And at the same time, we pray for your continued work of your Holy Spirit that does a work from the inside out to where you take our nature and through your hands you form it and recreated into something that looks like Jesus. And so we desire that, O oh God. In those ways that we need to receive your grace, so be it, O oh Lord. Instead of turning a blind eye or maybe in a form of denial, may we find ourselves moving back to you. Lord, we know that this parable is sort of open-ended. We don't know how the older son, how he responds. But we don't want it to be open-ended for us. We want to find ourselves moving back to you in places of restoration, reconciliation. 
So as we continue to reflect on this passage in the days to come, oh God, may you use it to your benefit so that we would be like you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.